The following bonus episode was originally released as a Patreon exclusive back in December 2019. This episode was part of the Drug War series I released throughout the fall of that year, and it talks about the fascinating life of Dr. Timothy Leary, a psychologist best known for his advocacy of hallucinogenic drugs and his influence on the 1960s counterculture. This story doesn't exactly have a ton of sympathetic characters, but it's real life in one heck of a ride. Enjoy. Over the last couple of months, Hotstirer Podcast has been focusing on the war on drugs in the United States, including its history, intent, marketing, major policies, and their effects on American society over the past several decades. When finished, the series will be five episodes total, the longest series ever undertaken on this podcast. But even with the time devoted to this topic, there's just so much information available, the stories, the policies, the impact, that's pretty much impossible to cover it all. It will be a year-long subject on its own, while researching for the episode on the drug war in the early 1970s, part three, I came across a related story that I found really fascinating, touching on the relationship between the academic community and the federal government, and what happens when someone from that community becomes persona non grata to the federal government for ideas that are at odds with the political agenda and policy. I brought up this person briefly in that episode, but it would take a bit more time to discuss and would mean a bonus-sized tangent. This is the story of a man Richard Nixon called the most dangerous man in America. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. Welcome to Potster Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. In this month's Patreon bonus episode, I want to talk about the story of Dr. Timothy Leary. What were his ideas and their impact? How did he get on the radar of the Nixon administration? And what happened because of it? And know that when I say, what happened because of it, that phrase right there is doing a lot of work. It's a hell of a story. Let's jump right in. We'll start out with some background on the drug that ends up being at the center of the story. Lysergic acid diethylamide, LSD for short, is a psychedelic substance first developed in the 1930s by Swiss scientist Albert Hoffman. In the late 1940s, Sandoz Laboratories, a pharmaceutical company, brought LSD to the attention of the U.S. government and research community. In the 1950s, LSD became one of the drugs used in Project MKUltra, a secret Central Intelligence Agency, or CIA, program consisting of human experiments conducted by the U.S. government, along with pharmaceutical companies and medical facilities during the Cold War, to see what substances and other types of psychological warfare could be used against the Soviet Union. LSD ended up not being used against the Soviets because the effects of the drug varied too widely and could not be predicted. MKUltra was kept from the public until details began to trickle out in the 1970s. Today, 
MKUltra is infamous as an example of government overreach and unethical research, as some subjects were involved without their knowledge, and some of the experiments involved, such as shock therapy, led to long-term damage. LSD was also used overtly by the academic research community, studied for how psychotropic effects could aid in alleviating a number of mental illnesses, and some found that it made an eye-opening recreational drug. During this point in time, unlike other drugs during this period, such as cannabis and heroin, LSD was a legal drug. We'll come back to LSD in a moment, but right now, let's shift over to Timothy Leary. Timothy Leary was born in 1920 in Springfield, Massachusetts, and grew up as an only child with a father who was a dentist, so it's clear he had somewhat of a privileged background. During his young adult years, his anti-establishment leanings became apparent. While this period did involve service in the U.S. Army during World War II, and Leary was honorably discharged as a sergeant, his college career was a bit... spotty. He attended several colleges, facing disciplinary action for rule-breaking here and there, and leaving voluntarily or getting expelled, until graduating with a BA in psychology from the University of Alabama in 1945. At this point, he decided that he wanted to pursue academia, which, having been in academia myself, particularly in the social sciences, I can probably tell you that it does tend to attract people who don't really like to be told what to do or think, so this direction makes a lot of sense for Leary. In 1946, Leary earned an MS from Washington State University, and in 1950, he earned his PhD in clinical psychology from University of California, Berkeley. So during the early 1950s, Timothy Leary was living as an assistant professor on the West Coast while maintaining a private practice. His expertise was in personality assessment, and that was what he was sought for in these early days. Many would kill to be in his position, but he was becoming restless, feeling like his life was just like everyone else's during this time. Work in an office, fight traffic, come home, drink. He did have a family, including a wife and kids, but the marriage was strained by infidelity and alcoholism. If you're familiar with the series Mad Men, Timothy Leary was pretty much the real life version of Don Draper just swap out ad exec for professor, same guy. Sadly, Leary's wife at the time, Mary Ann, died by suicide in 1955, leaving him as a single father of two children. In the late 1950s, Timothy Leary was the psychiatric research director at the Kaiser Family Foundation and published an acclaimed psychotherapy book, The Interpersonal Diagnosis of Personality. He also moved to Europe for a time with his children. But Leary was also plagued by an inability to fulfill professional obligations, so he wasn't able to keep up with the success he was having in the field. That's how he ended up at Harvard University in 1959, where he would work as a lecturer, and find himself working alongside colleague Richard Alpert, who would eventually forge research into psychedelic substances and their purported benefits to patients. But Leary's interest in psychedelics wasn't just academic, it was personal. In August 1960, 
Leary had taken a trip with his family to Mexico, where he found out about the use of a native mushroom with psychotropic properties. The active ingredient was psilocybin, a natural occurring hallucinogen. Upon taking the mushroom himself, he enjoyed how it made him feel, and he felt that it truly opened his mind. So when he came back, he and Albert researched psilocybin as well as LSD, which Leary started taking in 1961. The drugs having been provided to Harvard by Sandoz and other drug companies. This was called the Harvard Psilocybin Project. And when I say research, I mean taking these psychedelic drugs themselves and providing them to students who may not have been fully informed of what they were volunteering to do. It also meant parties where students were given hallucinogens and their reactions would be observed. A lack of structured scientific methodology, a lack of controls, very little of what one might expect from a legitimate up-and-up scientific trial. And did I mention they were high while they were conducting the trials? Eh. Leary and Albert swore by these drugs, claiming they helped alleviate all manner of mental illness and brought patients to a higher level of consciousness. Methods? What methods? Other colleagues at the university criticized their approach, including doing so publicly in the school paper. They felt that besides the methodological problems, the pair were approaching their studies on these drugs not as impartial scientific researchers, but as promoters of the recreational use of hallucinogens. The university mandated that they abide by specific ethical guidelines as a condition of their continued employment, such as not including undergrads in their studies. But in 1963, having not kept to these guidelines, both men were fired from the university. Because of the circumstances by which they were fired, having been dismissed for a lack of academic rigor in their research, their academic careers were over. But it wasn't the end of the road for either of these men. Alpert, who later became known as Ram Das, became a major name in the 1960s counterculture movement, traveled to India to learn under Indian spiritualists, and in 1971, wrote a book called Be Here Now about yoga, spirituality, and meditation. And what about Timothy Leary? After his loss of employment in 1963, Leary was able to secure financing from wealthy benefactors and a place to expand on his psychedelic exploration at the Hitchcock Estate in Millbrook, New York, which was also known as Millbrook. Over the next few years, Leary, his benefactors, and former academic colleagues were involved in the exploration of spiritual enlightenment using hallucinogens and practices such as group therapy, meditation, and yoga without the cover of academic research. And there were parties. Oh, they were parties. Leary courted the bohemians, the artists, and the authors. He also worked to endear himself to the hippies, speaking about the benefits of psychedelic drugs at the Human BN, held in San Francisco in 1966, the precursor to the famed Summer of Love. The hippie movement was a portion of the mostly white, middle-class counterculture, which aimed to drop out of the turbulent 1960s altogether through focus on spirituality, higher consciousness, and communal living. Seizing on this, Leary at this point coined his famous phrase, turn on, tune in, drop out. You see, this was never a political movement. This was counterculture, but not so much the political counterculture. Leary himself was not particularly politically inclined. 
He was content to watch the world burn. He said that student activists were, quote, young men with menopausal minds, end quote, and said that LSD could stand for, quote, let the state disintegrate, end quote. I would argue that as a well-connected, educated, middle-aged white man living in the political and social upheaval of the 1960s, he was privileged enough to have the option to stay out of politics in the way that many others do not. But that was all about to change pretty quickly. Timothy Leary might not have been interested in finding politics, but politics sure had a way of finding him. In 1966, LSD became a controlled illegal drug through a wave of state laws. It was later classified as a Schedule I drug in 1970. And it seems that the move to make LSD, as well as some other hallucinogens, illegal had to do with its popularity among young people, especially the young people of some means. It was one thing to test hallucinogens as part of a covert psychological warfare program against the Soviets. It's another thing for Americans to use it, especially the young and middle class, the people with potential. Timothy Leary attempted to found a religion, the League for Spiritual Discovery, that required the use of LSD for the purposes of getting around the drug bans, but was ultimately unsuccessful. Now, back at Millbrook, the LSD problem at Millbrook came to the attention of G. Gordon Liddy, who later became a prominent member of the Nixon administration under domestic policy advisor John Ehrlichman. At the time, Liddy was a local assistant district attorney who wanted to end the activities at this local psychedelic mecca. So during Millbrook's existence, Liddy, in concert with local law enforcement, made it a mission to target the clinic with a series of arrests which culminated in a major drug raid on Millbrook in 1966. Leary himself was also targeted, mostly with arrests for the possession of cannabis. One of these arrests, during a stop at the U.S.-Mexico border in 1965, got him a 30-year prison sentence on the basis of the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. But Leary challenged the constitutionality of his conviction all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court leading to the Marijuana Tax Act being declared unconstitutional in Leary v. United States in 1969. The reason the Marijuana Tax Act was held unconstitutional was because the law required self-incrimination to be in compliance. You had to essentially say you're trafficking in weed and that you didn't pay the tax. So this requirement ran afoul of the Fifth Amendment right to avoid self-incrimination. There went the most influential piece of anti-drug legislation on the books at that time. But over the course of the 1960s, the law was catching up with him. In 1967, after the closure of Millbrook due to multiple police raids, Leary went to Laguna Beach, California, and while there, mingled with Hollywood figures, assisted by his wife at the time, Rosemary. The next year, in 1968, he was arrested for marijuana possession. Then later that year, Richard Nixon was elected to the presidency, running on a law and order platform. He found himself inheriting the Vietnam War from his predecessor, Lyndon Johnson, in all that came with it, such as the social and cultural issues of the times, like the civil rights movement and strained race relations, and the counterculture, including the anti-war movement and the hippies who dropped out, so to speak. Nixon's goal was to end everything the 1960s represented and the drug war would be the answer. 
His primary targets in the drug war were anti-war protesters and the black community. And Nixon's administration policy over time was shaped to primarily focus on cannabis and opioids such as heroin. After Leary's 1965 conviction was overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1969, he decided to run for governor of California against terrible human in training, Ronald Reagan. John Lennon wrote the Beatles song, Come Together, initially as a campaign song for Timothy Leary. But Leary's legal troubles were by no means over. In 1970, Leary was convicted of the 1968 California marijuana possession charge. Due to this, and an earlier 1965 charge, not the one he went to the Supreme Court for, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison for both to run consecutively, so a total of 20 years in prison. A 20-year bid for weed possession. So, you would think this is it. He serves his sentence, gets out in 1990, or maybe a little earlier due to good behavior or prison overcrowding, and lives the rest of his days in obscurity. And not exactly. When Leary arrived at the prison, he, like other inmates housed in California at the time, was given a personality assessment for the corrections department to decide on what work assignment would be the best fit. But if you recall from earlier in the episode, Leary's area of academic expertise, which he was known for prior to his LSD and psilocybin research, was personality assessment. And some of the measures involved in the test were developed by Leary himself. So he was able to game the system and obtain a gardening assignment, which allowed him to be held in low-level security surroundings at the California Men's Colony in San Luis Obispo. Shortly after Leary was assigned, a consortium of drug distributors called the Brotherhood of Eternal Love paid $25,000, the equivalent of $166,000 in today's money, to the Weather Underground, a far-left militant group, to spring Leary from prison. A truck was waiting for him outside the prison. Leary, at this point a 50-year-old man, pulled himself along a telephone pole over the prison fence where he was picked up and whisked into exile outside the United States. Meanwhile, Richard Nixon was beginning to face a lot of pressures from the presidency due to negative press over Vietnam, while according to John Ehrlichman, Nixon was aiming to discredit the black community and the political counterculture with the war on drugs, he sought a bigger, more prominent fish. Someone with ideas that influenced a large segment of Americans, and perhaps with some input along the way by G. Gordon Liddy, which is just my speculation, Nixon settled on Timothy Leary, the godfather of LSD, who was now an escaped fugitive, and, as the president proclaimed, the most dangerous man in America. The irony being that what landed Leary in prison in the first place wasn't even LSD at all. It was cannabis. Once Leary escaped from prison, he was reunited with his wife, Rosemary, and both were smuggled to Algiers, the capital of Algeria, which is in North Africa. There, he was placed under the care of the Black Panthers, who were at this point also exiled in Algiers and were on friendly terms with the Algerian government. Eldridge Cleaver, the head of the Black Panthers, was now holding Timothy Leary and his wife. And in Cleaver, the alpha of the group, 
Leary met his match. He said of Cleaver, quote, It was a new experience for me to be dependent on a strong, variable, sexually restless, charismatic leader who was insanely erratic. I usually played that role myself. End quote. And as for Cleaver, he opposed the use of psychedelic drugs, sending a message to supporters stateside that people who used hallucinogens were, quote, doing nothing except destroying your own brains and strengthening the hands of our enemy, end quote. The leadership of the Black Panthers was staunchly against the psychedelic drug use and the cavalier lifestyle of the Learys, a reflection of the conflict among the groups who opposed the actions of the U.S. government. Due to this conflict and the fact that Eldridge Cleaver ultimately didn't find Leary to be useful, the Learys left Algeria for Switzerland in 1971 and were housed by the French arms dealer Michel Hochard, who claimed he chose to support the Learys because he believed he had an obligation as a, quote, gentleman to protect philosophers, end quote. But he really had a film deal in mind. The Learys separated around this time and Rosemary left on her own as life on the run had proven a major strain on their marriage. At this point, the federal government was on to Timothy Leary, but the problem they continued to encounter for the better part of a year is that Switzerland, as well as other countries Leary would flee to during this time in exile, would not extradite him to the United States. This was apparently due to Leary fighting extradition, some countries not having an extradition treaty with the US, and the help of connections such as philosopher and poet Allen Ginsberg. Ultimately, in 1972, Timothy Leary was apprehended by federal agents on a plane in Afghanistan and brought back to the United States to face additional charges related to his escape and to serve out the rest of his sentence. Nixon finally had his man. This is where the famous photo of Leary laughing as he's being escorted in handcuffs comes from. His bail was set at $5 million, and he was facing 95 years in prison. As remand hearing, the judge pretty much outlined why he was in the position he was in. And interestingly enough, it wasn't simply because of the prison escape, or even the weed. The judge said, quote, If he is allowed to travel freely, he will speak publicly and spread his ideas, end quote. So much for First Amendment protections. During his trial in 1973, Leary had an attorney, but was a very active participant in his own defense. He ended up not getting the 95 years, and some of the charges were ultimately dropped. But he would be sentenced to an additional five years for escape, along with his original sentence for drug possession. And this time, he would be sent to Folsom Prison, a maximum security prison at this point. At one point while imprisoned, he shared a wall with Charles Manson, who, during their talks, expressed to Leary that he couldn't understand why he gave people LSD without trying to control them. It didn't take long in prison, real prison this time, before being locked up started to wear on Leary. In 1974, he decided to cooperate with the federal authorities who were investigating Weather Underground. He claimed that the testimony he provided was information the government either already knew or wouldn't be damaging to the group which was an account supported by Weather Underground. But he would now be known as an informant, a snitch. And this made some of his most ardent supporters, such as Allen Ginsberg, his former colleague Ram Das, 
and his own son, Jack Leary, turn on him. Jack said, quote, his action comes as no surprise to me. I know Timothy lies at will when he thinks it will benefit him because for him, lies are easier to control than the truth. I would not be surprised if he testified about my sister or myself if he could. Timothy, by his deceit, is betraying the very meaning of trust, end quote. Oof. Ken Kelly, who had once been the publisher of political and multicultural magazine Sundance, said of Leary's cooperation with the authorities, quote, This is the death of the 60s. It's sad, end quote. While Richard Nixon was on his way out as president at the time, he ultimately got what he wanted. Timothy Leary was pardoned by California Governor Jerry Brown in 1976. Over the next two decades, he would continue to ingratiate himself with Hollywood stars and support himself through speaking engagements, interviews, and by writing books, maintaining a comfortable living for an ex-con. And speaking of ex-cons, Leary forged a partnership with an unlikely ally. G. Gordon Liddy, the man who targeted him in the 1960s as a local prosecutor and was part of a presidential administration who pursued him in the early 1970s. Since Leary's capture by authorities, Liddy had encountered his own trouble with the law. After playing an instrumental role in the Watergate break-in that led to Richard Nixon's eventual resignation, Liddy was convicted of conspiracy, burglary, and illegal wiretapping in 1973 and sentenced to 20 years in federal prison. He was later pardoned by President Jimmy Carter in 1977. Leary and Liddy, now felons and casualties of the Nixon administration, sensed a prime opportunity. In the 1980s, the two did a joint speaking tour, presenting themselves as historically influential men with different political and social ideologies, but sharing the same stage. This tour helped to reinvigorate both of their images, and allowed them both lucrative careers during their post-prison lives. Timothy Leary still took psychedelic drugs, along with his favorite drug, alcohol. But at this late stage in his life, he was private about his drug use. In the mid-1990s, he and Ram Dass reconciled. Leary died in 1996, at the age of 70, from prostate cancer. This story caught my attention because a lot of times we hear stories where there's a defined good guy and bad guy, sympathetic characters and villains. But in the story of Dr. Timothy Leary, there are no good guys. If you listen to America's War on Drugs Part 3, you'll note that Richard Nixon was definitely not a good guy at all. But while Timothy Leary was the protagonist of the story, he wasn't a good guy either. Leary was a problematic narcissist with a defiant streak, a huge ego, intended to move about life focused mostly on the self, what made him feel good, what gave him the most attention. He even went about filming the lead-up to his own death, which is on replay on his website even today. If we isolate that, it's admirable for a person facing a terminal illness to find a way to have some control, some agency in his dying. But in the full context of his life, this might have also been about a need to spotlight himself and his life one last time. Like President Richard Nixon, who had a complicated legacy of his own in a lot of ways, Dr. Timothy Leary did also. It's complicated. 
And that's what makes it even more fascinating that Nixon would have referred to Leary of all people as the most dangerous man in America. Leary had everything at his disposal to be part of the establishment, the upbringing, the education, the connections. Dude at one point taught at Harvard. Yet he chose to advance the cause of psychedelic drugs, deliberately breaking norms and protocol to do so. He wasn't a revolutionary in any traditional sense. He was ultimately loyal to himself rather than to a cause, per se. The closest to being revolutionary was his advocating of separating oneself from the system entirely, which not all would feasibly be able to do. And in his self-focused philosophy, turn on, tune in, drop out, it seemed that Leary was advocating the easy way out of a turbulent period of American history. But such a message did appeal to a swath of the population who could. And I wonder if having that kind of power, not directly political, but threatening to the establishment in its own way by the influence on the young people, that's where Timothy Leary's ideas became a threat. And as much as we would like to think that we have the right in the United States to embrace and speak out on ideas that are not popular with the government, enshrined in the First Amendment right to free speech, there have been several instances like this one, throughout American history, where beliefs and ideas have been framed as so dangerous that the government works overtime to silence the advocates. Thank you so much for listening to this bonus episode of Potstirer Podcast. Stay tuned for the exciting new episodes that I'll be releasing very soon. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirrerpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. Subscribing gets you new episodes once they come out so you don't have to wait. If you enjoyed the episode, please give it five stars and leave a review. And I'm always on Twitter, so follow me there at potstirrercast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free. 